Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns, and we've got a vaccine. Hi, listeners. Benjamin here, coming to you once again from the South London basement. Welcome to Coronapod. It feels to us like the pandemic has shifted once again into a new phase. So we'll be publishing Coronapod as a standalone show for the time being to allow us to cover all that's going on in more detail. Isn't that right, Noah Baker? Yeah, we launched Coronapod way back in March last year in response to this sort of, you know, it's not new anymore, but at the time, completely unprecedented world event and then as time went on we felt like it was developing into a new phase but we've spent so much time on coronapod when it was its own show and when it was sitting within the main nature podcast talking about vaccines and end games and politics and what happens next and a whole bunch of those things are now happening and it feels like there's so much to discuss that it's time to bounce this back out into its own dedicated show again Hmm, absolutely. Well, obviously Noah's here, of course, but we're not alone. Also on the line from the west coast of America, making her return after several months away, is Amy Maxman, senior reporter here at Nature. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's so good to be back. We're pleased to have you. And I have like a thousand questions about the last couple of months, because while you've not been on the show, God, a hell of a lot has happened. (laughs) Yeah, and it's kind of wonderful for me to come back because I felt like we're entering a new era now. We have new leadership in the U.S., which means there's different COVID strategies. There's these new variants, which are going to usher in some new unknowns, and we've got a vaccine. In fact, we've got a bunch of vaccines with a whole bunch of issues, questions, excitement that comes with each of them. And speaking of things that we've discussed in the past that are coming back One of the things we talked about most in those early days of Coronapod was the WHO. So back at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of eyes were on the WHO as they were really the central resource that was giving updates about how the pandemic was progressing. They have been less mentioned in recent months, but that doesn't make them any less relevant. And as the new administration comes in in the States and Joe Biden has committed to rejoining the WHO, there is a general thought 
among many of the member states that some of the protocols need to be looked at again to assess how well it did and how things can change in the future to adapt what might happen in future pandemics or even this continuing ongoing pandemic. And that's what you've been spending a lot of time looking at recently, Amy. Yeah, exactly. It is. That was the first thing I kind of jumped back into because the WHO has an executive board meeting every January. And that's where some 30 to 40 health officials around the world, that means like ministers of health or the heads of health agencies, meet with WHO officials to sort of discuss what world policies around health are going to come up at their World Health Assembly in May. And in May, that's when you actually you vote on different proposals and changes actually go into effect. So this was a quieter yet really important meeting in January. And a big subject right now is that last year, you'll remember, a lot of countries were upset with the WHO and said, you know, there should be sort of an investigation into what the WHO did. I mean, this was around the time when President Donald Trump even began the process of revoking membership of the U.S. within the WHO. But a lot of the countries were saying they want to critique in order to reform the WHO so that it performs its jobs better. So that was sort of the big subject at the executive board meeting last week, and it coincided with the first two interim investigations into the first part of last year when the pandemic began. And and central to what was being discussed then uh, is, I would call it a public health emergency of international concern, but I think some people call it a FIC. And this was something that was announced last year. And there was, you know, some backwards and forwards there as well. Amy, what is a FIC and how is it central to, to the debates that are going on? Yeah, so remember the WHO, they are comprised of countries, 194 countries. So back in 2005, countries decided that there should be some kind of alarm raised when there's a major health emergency that's extraordinary that could threaten countries outside of the one that's most affected and that there should be a lot of coordination in preventing that emergency from getting worse. And so that alarm, they decided, should be called a public health emergency of international concern because that's a very long phrase. You know, you use the acronym, which I've heard all number of pronunciations for a FAIC or a FIG or a FAKE. Nobody really agrees on that. So that was declared on January 30th. So that should be the point when, you know, this is the number one highest alarm that the director general can declare. And the way he declares it or she declares it is what they do is when they see a big emergency, say polio resurgence or Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo or this new coronavirus, they convene experts that are outside of the WHO. They convene, they discuss it. It's kind of behind closed doors. And then they advise the director general on what he should do. And so Tedros, on January 22nd of last year, convened his committee. At first, they decided, no, we shouldn't declare it. And then eight days later, on January 30th, they said, yes, we should declare this highest alarm. And when you declare it, the WHO also makes recommendations that countries are supposed to follow. I feel like public health emergency of international concern, fake, 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 how you want to do it. I just think (laughs) it's so indicative of a frustration that I can imagine a lot of people feel about 
the function of the WHO. So the WHO is this huge organization that can do all these amazing things and has this access to all these amazing resources and expertise. But sometimes there's a tendency to think that these huge sort of UN organizations are just bogged down in wonky language and they're slow. And I think that name for me almost sort of it almost encapsulates that frustration with those big organizations. And is it something that could change after this experience with the COVID pandemic? Is that what's on the table right here? Yes, it's something that's on the table. And just to explain why they use the term public health emergency of international concern instead of pandemic, there's a few reasons. One is not all major health emergencies are going to be a pandemic. So they wanted it to be broad for that reason. Also, there's this feeling among public health people, if you say this is a pre-pandemic, world leaders might panic, and that was what they were afraid of. So they kind of want to balance this line between not causing a panic, yet causing world leaders to do things and respond. Because in a panic, leaders might go ahead and jump to the things they always jump to, namely blanket bans on travel or on trade that might do huge damage economically, but might not necessarily be super effective. So those were the reasons why they chose the name. Fake. (laughs) Fake, right? And I mean, could it be worse? I mean, people's eyes glaze over, like, who says this term? You know, people pay attention to the word pandemic. They just do. But I haven't heard a lot about changing the name itself. Well, Amy, if that's what it is, and if we cast our minds back to January last year, the WHO did announce one of these, And they make a lot of suggestions to governments around the world as to what they should do to try and mitigate whatever's going on. But it seems in this instance that most or many of those recommendations were ignored. Yeah, that's the big problem. So I think a lot of people who've watched this do say, WHO, why didn't they declare it on January 22nd? So there seems to be some sort of agreement that, you know, it was pretty bad. There was clear signs it was being transmitted between humans. It had already spread to some other countries. So one is, okay, they should have declared a little bit earlier. But I would say the bigger problem is most countries just didn't really pay attention at all. And I guess that's one of the big things that's being discussed and is up for review right here. So, you know, we can talk about the name for as long as we want. But really, one of the fundamental problems here is how much influence the WHO realistically has to influence global health policy, because it doesn't actually have very much power here. Its power relies entirely on people listening to it. And is that one of the things that could be up for review in terms of how to encourage a better unified global health response to to emergencies in the future? Yeah, and I think that's something that this independent panel that was put together to review what the WHO did wrong or how it could be strengthened, that's something that's the hardest thing they're really dealing with right now is how do you change that fact? How do you make countries sort of listen? And not just listen, but actually have actions that are ready to go. I mean, you know, if we look at like Taiwan, for example, they took really concrete actions. So yeah, places like Taiwan, Singapore, they reacted very quickly, and they were held up as these examples in the fight from COVID. But they have also got very recent experience with SARS. And so you might have an understanding of why that's fresh in their memories. And we've talked about this on Coronapod before. Do you think that moving forward, some of this discussion is maybe not as necessary? Because I'm fairly sure the world will remember the impact of COVID for quite some time, and perhaps might take a future threat more seriously by virtue of recent experience. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is the energy that 
the people talking about reforming the WHO, for example, Joanne Liu, who was the former president of Doctors Without Borders or Medicine Sans Frontiers. And she actually, in 2014, 2015, she was really hard on the World Health Organization because they really dragged their feet in declaring a FAIC for the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. She's part of the group that's assessing the WHO now. And one thing that she really impressed upon me was like, this is the moment when hopefully much of the world can see the importance of public health, how devastating a pandemic is. I mean, look at the economic impact this is going to have, in addition to the number of people who've died. Well, we can hear her thoughts on the level of importance she thinks the world should place a pandemic. Uh, here's a little extract from your interview with her. Could we elevate the threat of pandemic to the threat of a chemical weapon or to a nuclear weapon where people accept that the threat is so big that we need to collaborate and we need to collaborate in a timely fashion because the thing is speed is the variable in epidemic you don't have it the same in nuclear weapon or a chemical because you cannot it, it doesn't grow exponentially the threat but in epidemic it does every single day it matters wow well she's really ranking it up there with some of the biggest threats facing humanity right Yes. So this should be the moment that the world sees how important and how grave this threat is. But it's not a given that countries will do the right thing. I mean, I'm nervous. I'm sitting in the U.S. right now and I actually am doing some more reporting and I always poke around in different things. I was talking with a group that's doing contact tracing in the Central Valley in California. And basically, when I asked enough questions, I realized they don't reach out to people who tested positive until like it seems about a week from when they get the test result for when they start asking about who they've hung out with. I mean, that's a week of spreading it to all those people. So it's completely ineffective. And the fact that we're going on a year of this pandemic and that's where we're at, to me, that suggests that maybe uh, we understand that a pandemic is terrible, but are we really strengthening our systems so that's why it's not quite a given. I mean, the WHO at the time said that contact tracing was one of the key things that needed to be done when this health emergency was announced. But here we are a year later, and to sound like a broken record, the same issues are coming up again and again. They really are. So that's why it's not a given. So that's why it's something to really focus on. So, you know, there's different proposals that are put forward for what we could do to strengthen the World Health Organization, at least in both the way it declares a FAIC and also in the ways that it could get countries to respond. I mean, those are the kind of things that people are discussing right now. And I guess I could tell you some of the proposals if you'd like. Yeah, I'd love to hear some of the ways that they might be able to tackle this differently in the future, or certainly the ways that are being discussed. Well, first of all, when they declare this FAIC, there's a number of people who are saying they have to be more transparent about how they make that decision. You know, right now it is a bit behind closed doors. Something else that might help would be if the WHO was allowed to kind of respond to sort of unofficial data, like if they hear on WhatsApp about a strange new pneumonia somewhere in the world, then maybe they could have more powers to kind of respond to that data. Right now, countries have decided they want WHO to respond to official data, which is great for reasons of accuracy. But if there's a government that wants to hide an outbreak, that can cause kind of a problem. Another recommendation is right now the FAIC is sort of on or off. It either is a fake or it's not a fake. So Tedros, the director general of the World Health Organization and others have talked about a dimmer switch. Like what if there were like 
three levels of alert, like an amber alert, a red alert, kind of like how the U.S. has for hurricane systems. Then there's some other idea from the president of the European Council, which is to say there should be a pandemic treaty in addition to these international health regulations in the FAIC. And that's sort of an interesting idea. Amy, can I ask you something? If these are potential changes, reforms that we might see to the WHO announced in May, as you've said there, do they have any relevance to what's going on right now? Because obviously the world has reached a lot of unenviable milestones in different countries in terms of numbers of deaths. Is this something that we can see make a difference to what's going on at the moment? Yeah, it is. So let's say, and this is completely hypothetical, to be totally clear, this has not happened. Let's say there's a variant that either does not respond to the drugs that we've found that work, or there's a new variant of coronavirus that escapes the vaccine. Now, a country that has such a variant risks having its borders completely, everyone closing up around them, not allowing anybody from that country to leave. There could be incentives for the country to not report that variant. But the WHO, one of its core purposes, why it even exists, is as like a sentinel. So we want the WHO to know when variants like that occur and to make it public. So what tools do they have at their disposal to be able to encourage countries to report, to be open, but also on the reverse, make it so that their worst fears don't come true, which would mean they want other countries to say, hey, listen, rather than shut all your borders to this country, what can we do to ensure that they have some economy that's still moving? And also to to tell their other countries, hey, you really need to step up your surveillance for this new variant. So these sort of things could make a difference. So are you a betting woman, Amy? I'm interested to know if you have any suggestions about how the WHO is likely to actually change. You've presented a whole bunch of different ways that it could change. Is it gonna? And is it gonna work? (laughs) So different proposals would take longer or shorter. So like this idea of a dimmer switch... That's the one where it's like the amber alert, the red alert. Let's say all countries at the World Health Assembly, and this is my understanding, just say, yes, we unanimously think this is a great idea. I think that can go into effect pretty immediately. Something like a pandemic treaty, that actually repeats a lot of the things that are in the international health regulations. But one reason for it is it uses the word pandemic. I don't know rules around the world, but like... For the U.S., that requires congressional approval. And I'm told from reporting, we're looking at five years down the road for something like that, for the U.S. to be able to sign on to that because there's so many steps involved with signing on to a treaty. And then there's always the possibility that not too much happens. Joanne Liu, who I spoke with, the former president of MSF, she pointed out that there were so many panels and committees formed in the wake of the 2014 West Africa Ebola outbreak And very few of those recommendations were really taken on board. Ultimately, you need countries to decide that they want to set up long-term systems to deal with this and that they care a lot. Right now, there's not even laws saying that the WHO must be able to go into a country and investigate themselves when there's a suspected outbreak. So countries don't want to give them that power because that means giving up some of their sovereignty. So it's actually the countries that need to agree to do these things. And that's kind of always the balance here, right? It's like we've developed this international agency, but in order to give it power means we're relinquishing some of our own power as separate nations. 
Speaking of countries doing what they can as individual countries, since the last Coronapod episode, in which we talked about all of the things that the new administration was hoping to do to tackle the coronavirus pandemic, there's been a week and an awful lot has happened. I'm kind of interested to know, Amy, what's the feeling like in the States? Like, do you feel like there is a different approach? Does it feel like things have been energized or is it too soon to tell? Well, I think, yeah, there's a huge feeling that things are going to be energized. On the international front, Biden's like first move the day after he took office, Tony Fauci, who was speaking as sort of ambassadors at the WHO's executive board meeting, kind of announced that the process is in place for making sure that the U.S. remains within the WHO. So they're reversing the letter that Trump administration sent last year saying that we were terminating a relationship. So... It's clear that the U.S. wants to be a part of the world again. They've also said specifically they're not there just as a cheerleader of WHO. They're there to help reform the WHO. Remember, if we left the WHO, we don't get to reform it. So on the global front, there's a lot of action. You know, similarly, domestically in the U.S., day one, Joe Biden's administration posted a 200-page strategy on how they're going to attack the coronavirus at home, as well as try and prevent future pandemics. And kind of the fun part is now researchers can start critiquing it and saying this is what's wrong with it. Before there just wasn't even anything to critique. It was just sort of like, can we listen to science at all? Now they're hoping for some more details. They're hoping for funding to back those details. But at least now we've got a coordinated plan going forward. Well, Amy, it's great to have you back on the show. And you know, I hope you'll join us again next week because, you know, lots more to discuss, I think, right? Yeah, I feel like the beginning of the show, we almost listed a kind of a contents page for the next month of Coronapod. We've got vaccine rollouts, we've got variants, which there's a lot to talk about, and that will be coming on the show. In the meantime, I've volunteered to become a vaccinator. I've been training about how to administer vaccines, which I think is quite exciting. Whoa. Nice. I know. That's very cool of you to volunteer to do that. It's also nice to hear that they're recruiting. Yeah. I think they're actually desperate for people. Yeah, my mum came out of retirement, re-upped as a nurse, and she's been spending the last week or so giving them to people. I found it quite moving, I must say. You know, I'm very proud of her to step up and answer the call when it came. That's so cool. That's wonderful. Well, let's leave it there then. Amy and Noah, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Amy. Take care. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.